Welcome to Holyrood Ungagged, the Nicholas Sturgeon tax return of political podcasts. This is season four, episode 12, and I'm your host, Brian Finlay, broadcasting from Falkirk, Free State. And joining me this, this evening is my eternal comrade, Mogaisen Digital Michelangelo, Deborah Torrance. And we've not really got a name for you because you normally host, David, so you're just the chap from Blantyre. I'm just delighted to be on your show, Brian. Nice to have you. This is just so weird and I feel really <laughs> sort of out of it. So anyway, how is everyone doing? Brilliant. Um, Loving this dynamic. It's great. Awkward. I'm a bit disappointed. I thought you'd come up with your own um, spiel about... Um, when you say the Eternal Conrad, it was like, hey, she's my Eternal Conrad. And she's mine too. Much. I'm everybody's she's, eternal comrade. She's everyone. Well, now I feel less special. <laughs> David icon, could be the, the hostess with the mostest. Taking a wee back seatist today. <laughs> Side seat passenger. Side seat passenger. I know you're trying to get me to come up with my own script when I've had to do my own research whilst trying to squeeze in my usual work and teaching. Come on, David. Well, you've had four seasons of preloading, and now it's my turn. <laughs> Thank you, do some work, Brian. Savage. So how's everyone's week been? Oh, hectic. Um, my wife was away at the weekend, so mm-hmm. I was in full-time daddy duty with all four of the kids. Uh, the highlight of which has got to be when the four-year-olds came and asked me to blow her nose and, like, four Tic Tacs from flying out. They'd all been up there for at least, uh, maximum... 48 hours because that's wow. the only time her sister had Tic Tacs when she came in with them with her grand. <laughs> um, imagine having Tic Tacs melting in your nose, that would wake me up. That would be a very fresh feeling. It would be, yeah. Chilly. <laughs> Children are wonderful. Yes, yes, they're a miracle. A miracle. A miracle we look strangle. This is my last week of being in my 30s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm quite uh, excited just about the weekend and, and going out and getting drunk, uh, having a dance for the arthritis sets in because I hear that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I've not really been up to much this week, just working away and uh, getting eye drops in Jeannie's eyes after her cataracts, which has been quite a feat in itself because she blinks a lot and then goes, Oh, it's in, and you can see it dripping down her cheek. <laughs> So it's been a battle of the wills. I'm sort of trying to stealth, stealth eyedropper on the stairs when she's <laughs> sleeping in the couch. I go, Jeannie, she opens her eyes and drop it in. I had such a nice weekend. I went up to Loch Lomond with my parents because <gasps> my mammy's recovering after her back operation that she had just before Christmas. So it was our first wee day out and about. <clears throat> went for some nice food, went for a wee wander. It was a glorious day, cold but glorious. So that was awfully nice, and I just just generally had a nice, content, quiet, busy week. I was at the gym last night, back at the gym after my operation. So uh, since I'm able to carry things now, so that's so that's nice. Doing kettlebells class, my my whole body from belly button up is is agony, to be honest. <laughs> I'm heading up to Aberdeen start of this, so I want to see the corners of Shout out to my wee cousin Lucy, who's, who's appearing in Greece at the Aberdeen Arts Fair. Oh, wow. So it was mum's birthday last week, so I'm taking her up to see it. So she's very excited. Excellent. 
jamming. Should we just get ungagged? Let's get ungagged. So, opening story for this week, uh, Scotland's court service has said it will review the process for utility warrants following an outcry over forced installation of pay-as-you-go meters. It's thought that at least 32,000 such warrants were applied by energy companies in Scotland in 2022. Uh, the Times uh, done an undercover uh, report um, and found that there was debt agents uh, on behalf of British Gas had broken into vulnerable people's homes and fitted um, pay-as-you-go meters. Ofgem has asked for the um, process to stop, um, but unfortunately they don't have the powers to impose um, laws to stop that from happening. Uh, Ofgem has also asked these companies to get their own house in order. However, British Gas, EDF and uh, OVO have uh, said that they are no longer following the practice. This uh, news story comes on the backdrop of both Shell and BP reporting record-breaking and doubling profits as millions of people worry about putting the heating on. David. Uh, well, I think in recent months we've realised that the energy companies are all thieves, but it turns out they're burglars as well. I mean, I just, how is it legal to be breakers? I will, we knew, I think, in the last kind of months and couple of years that energy companies are thieves, but it turns out they're burglars as well. I just can't help but, you know, wonder how is it possible to be legal just to break into people's houses? Um, you know, it's, you know, so people with these, face with these, like, shockingly high energy bills that lots of people, I'm surprised there's more people know, struggle, totally uh, unable to pay. Um, faced with that, you know, they're then getting the trauma of having their houses broken into, like, you know, people with kids. Uh, it's outrageous. You know, and it's, so it's legal to do that, you know, and force the with this big company to break in. But, you know, it's no legal to leave, like, families with kids without heat or without um, ability to cook meals. And, you know, one of these, you know, this one happened on such a scale and you've got, like, the, you know, British Gas Chief Executive said he was horrified. And it's like, well, okay, you're horrified. What else? What else are you going to do to make this up? Because I didn't see any further statement about compensation for people or um, a further investigation. And they just, the company that they were employing to do this, you know, they've kind of hung it to dry and said that they're not going to, they're suspending them. And it's like, well, what exactly did you think their purpose was? You know, why were you, know, serving these things yourself. You know, it was clear like this these were your bully boys that were doing the dirty work to give you deniability. So then when it did come out, you could come out and make this statement about how horrified you are and how it was this other company that was really responsible. Um you know and I was I might think you know were people were people left, these are people already in deep financial crisis getting left to like fix their doors or resecure their houses, you know it's so unacceptable. And just, just like the chief executive, Rich Sharps is calling for it to end. Well, don't call for it. Make it end. You're the government. You know, it's not fine and well. Like, uh, off gem and government and chief executives shaking their heads and seeing how terrible it was. Well, make sure it doesn't happen and make it right. Uh, you might have guessed it annoyed me. Just a wee bit. That's Understandable. Different. Ask Deborah how she feels about that. On Deborah. 
How do you feel about this? Equally as enraged as David, it's pretty ridiculous. The current state of energy in the UK is, is frightening. Um, people who are on direct debits have been expected to pay ridiculous amounts. And if they go into arrears and they're able to you know, be put onto prepayment meters, it's even worse because they are at a higher rate. They have standing charges. My niece is on a prepayment meter. I was asking her about it. And she's basically £420 a month on gas and electricity. And that's as she uses it. And she doesn't get much help. She says she gets £30 a month towards electricity from the government. And that, that covers maybe three or four days. And the if she goes into the negative, she says she doesn't have any emergency credit anymore. She's just got to top up. She, if she's not got the money, she can't top up. Uh, she does it online. Back in the day when I had a prepayment meter, it was cards. And that was tedious enough. That This sounds like they've got people, you know, by the short and curlies um, when they're on the prepayment meter. Because if they don't have money, credit in their account, then they don't have electricity. I'd, it's disgusting that corporations that are making such profits are able to do this. I'm glad the Scottish, was it, did you say the sheriff, they're, uh, they're reviewing the bill, Brian? Yeah. Do we, do okay. we know when we expect a No, we just know judgment. that there has been a, a panel pulled together to review the situation. Um, but like I said, there's a couple of companies that have said that they're going to stop the forced installations uh, whilst this review goes ahead. Um, but not all companies have, have committed to that as far as I'm aware. I read a figure of 32,000 instances in 2022. That's yeah. outrageous. That's, the, that's how many warrants were requested from the, from the courts in Scotland. But there's no... Um, Basically, there's no number that they, the Scottish courts can confirm of how many were, were approved because some courts don't file them. They don't oh. record their numbers. So, again, this is just it's just opaque, isn't it? It's, it's disgusting. We don't have bailiffs in Scotland, don't we not? So people can't come and put you in jail for being in debt. Um, I just... That's... Energy should be a right, in my opinion. I think everybody should just have access to a community grid and then they get either free, preferably, or really cheap energy. I don't understand why these energy companies have such a monopoly. Oh, wait, yes, I do, because they've got lobbies and government, blah, 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 blah. I just, I, I'm equally as enraged as you, David, because the most vulnerable people in our society already pay premiums. They already pay such high taxes and stuff. They pay higher rates for their energy costs. They have to pay um, more for, what's the word, lesser services. Because if you're, you know, you, you, get a, you get a premium on it because you're poor. I don't even know if I'm wording that right. I'm just yeah, so... Yeah, like the, I, I always remember reading the... Ragged trousers of philanthropists. Mm -hmm. He talks about that, saying like, you know, it's how expensive it is being poor. Because yep. everybody knows the expensive pair of boots will last you ten years, 
but the poor person can't afford them, so they need to buy the cheap books and then buy them again next year and every year after that, uh, which is obviously more expensive in the long term. But, you know, you can only take advantage of taking a long term things if you can pay money up front. Exactly. And like what we're saying here that, you know, if you're poorer, it's more expensive to be poor. And, and that echoes like particularly when it comes to energy, but also when it comes to food and things as well, because yep. people spend more of their their income, however they're getting their income um, on essential services. So you've got things like electricity, food, uh, you know, day to day living costs. Um, and as, as we know, it's just spiraling completely out of control. And um, we've seen even for people who are on wet meters, which is um, not pre prepaid, um, that the government uh, support scheme comes to an end uh, next month. So that's the last payment of that. And there'll be a 20% increase as well. So that, you know, when, when this idea came out, you know, back in October, I think it was a sigh of relief when everyone was like, oh, thank goodness, we're going to be able to, you know, a lot of people are going to be getting some support over, over winter. Um, but of course, in Scotland in March, it's still pretty cold. Um, so we're facing, you know, 20% increase um, with no government support. Plus, you've got people who are on oil, who, who need to purchase oil and gas tanks, all, all these sort of off-grid options, which again is much more expensive. And then, of course, people on prepaid meters are paying a higher rate. The fact that this has been allowed to go on for so long without state intervention I think is ridiculous. The government could change it tomorrow um, if, if they chose to, but they're choosing not to. They're just saying, oh, this needs to end, um, which is not really any use. And I don't really see much pressure from, from opposition either, to be honest. Um, you, know, you know, you would think, particularly in the context that we're in, that we would see a lot of, of pressure, immediate pressure uh, on from the opposition and the government to do something about it. But the most important thing, I think, um, just reflecting on, on the particular times um, expose into this. So this was like somebody who went undercover and worked for, for one of these collection companies, right? So they're like two or three companies detached from British Gas. So they obviously are contracted out. So British Gas will, will employ this company to, to do these types of, of um, services. Um, but then they would might be subtracted to somebody else. So it's just a complete fragmentation of, of the supply chain, if you want to call it that. Um, and that's how people like, you know, the CEO of British Gas can go, oh my goodness, this is so terrible. We didn't know what was happening. So actually what this comes down to is that you as a CEO should resign because you have no control over what you're, you're your business is doing and you're not aware of what's going on and there should be immediate review and suspension of subcontracting these types of services out when it's impacting on on vulnerable people it's just to me it just it makes no sense and what we're starting to see, i mean we've seen it historically but we're seeing it a lot more now it's where ceos are just sort of like using the same lines as the government oh my goodness this is so terrible i can't believe that this has been happening we'll do an investigation about it and then we'll make some changes and then we'll rebrand and we'll do this but that process can take you know 18 months two years and by the time it's done it's, it's kind of not forgotten about but it's it's not headline news how did they not know the contract they'd uh, set up with the company there must have been a stage where they discussed, right, we want you to go and do this. Uh, because the company, I was listening on GMB, a wee uh, video clip, and they said that they were given £4 a metre mm -hmm. that was uh, forcibly installed. And that was sort of what they were bragging about. Um, and it's just, it's disgusting. I don't understand how... The British Gas didn't know, or any of the other companies. I don't understand. This is obviously 
uh, industry standard if it's spread across and there's mm-hmm. obviously a market for it, for it if there's companies that go out their way to do this sort of work. So mm-hmm. what's, their, what's their motivation? Were they given, we need to get X amount of metres a month? It'll just be just... profit driven entirely. Exactly. Say, you know, this is you know, you know, this company who might be three steps into the process who's actually actively going in and doing these types of things. But what's even more horrifying is, is some of the recordings that were taken. I think how they were sort of laughing um, about the you know vulnerabilities of people and things like that. Yeah, David. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a wee bit more insidious as well. Like, mm-hmm. you know, people can't pay their bills. So the reason I want to pay prepayment meters in is. It's bad PR if they cut somebody off and mm-hmm. stop their electricity and say somebody freezes to death. Entirely, entirely possible, in fact, likely. If they put in a prepayment meter, that person freezes to death, they've cut themselves off because they didn't have enough money to put in it. So it's, this is a way of not getting blamed for inevitable deaths that they know will come through their actions. But this gives them the deniability to say, well, we want the response, it's a prepayment meter, you know. You know, we didn't cut them off. They cut themselves off because they couldn't buy anything. And it's just when you think of the kind of things that, that must get discussed in boardrooms all the time along the lines, and just think, how is this a moral way to structure a a world? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, it reminds me of like the companies that will calculate whether it's worth recalling a product depending on how much it will cost them in lawsuits to what injured or dead uh, families or dead people. You say, well, well, it'll be cheaper to pay the compensation to the families. We'll, we'll, no, we'll no recall this product. It's, and I think we can... Oh, sorry, David, you go. No, I was just descending into muttering. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. But yeah, it's it's almost... It just kind of comes back to the arguments when it comes to all public services is that the private sector cannot provide um, essential services for people. Um, and particularly for vulnerable people, um, whether that be healthcare, whether that be access to, to energy or food or, or whatever it might be, that the private sector um, will, will be motivated by profit and they will be motivated by their own self-interests over the needs of um, the population at large. And I think we can just see that play out. Um, just going back to what we're saying about the, the actual recordings, there was actually... Um, video recordings of, of these people, or voice recordings, sorry, of... of almost sort of like trivialising it, distancing themselves, saying, oh, don't worry about it. You know, this is what we have to do. This is our job. And, you know, and, and there was actually some really cold-hearted comments about, oh, yeah, well, we, we, we don't really know if these people are that vulnerable. People might say they might be single parents and they might have kids in the house, but that's not really a vulnerability, you know, in, in certain lights and things like that. And it's just, if that's the types of people that that ultimately British Gas should be responsible for, that they are putting into their customers' homes to, to enforce this process onto them. Um, and, and ultimately it is illegal in the UK to disconnect somebody from the power, but it's not illegal to put a prepay meter in and that person's meter to run down and then they technically self-disconnect. And this is this is where we're at. And it's basically just a, a legal loophole um, for, for these companies to, to do that. And then, you know, just in the context of, of the oil producers themselves, the stage before providers, that this whole market, if that's what you want to call it, that's all currently what's happening, um, is that these types of companies like Shell and BP are just siphoning off this massive amount of, of, of profit and ultimately reducing the amount of money they're putting into green research. It's just... And whole system. I mean, it comes down to it's not just about energy; it's about power. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you're a big 
multinational company, or, um, you can get away with breaking into people's houses, you know, yeah. and nobody will be held account. In fact, if the police are involved, they're probably there helping it, uh, facilitate it, you know. And I just always think, thinking as well, like the scenario, like in society of, you know, what constitutes a crime sometimes, you know, this isn't this isn't burglary. They're, they're breaking into your house, uh, but it's not breaking an entry. Uh, whereas it's a bit like if you go to your work and you work all month and then at the end of the month uh, your your wages don't go in your bank and the company that you work for is not paying you. They've effectively stolen, like, say, £1,500 for you. If you go to the police and say, I've had £1,500 stolen by my boss, I'll say, that's a civil matter. You know, they get mm-hmm. a lawyer and take it up with them. But if I go into work and steal a tenner out of the petty cash, you know, if they work phone up and say, this guy stole a tenner out of the petty cash, they'll come up and put me in handcuffs mm-hmm. because, you know, that's where power lies in our society. And we pretend all this, you know, open and fair society, but well, not really when you dig into uh, things like that. Yeah. Next story. On the 2nd of February, Question Time was broadcast from Strathclyde University in Glasgow. The week following the show, um, there was a moral panic ripping through Scottish politics and the media uh, linked to the safety of women in women's prisons. Um, the culture war has been stoked after rapist Isla Bryson uh, was held in solitary confinement at Cortonvale Women's Prison. Audience member John Josh Henderson uh, wrote in the National that the first uh, question had lasted about 10 minutes before moving on to the inevitable subject of GRA, trans women and the Scottish Prison Service. The question was framed as, should safeguarding for women's only spaces be reviewed? Panel member India Willoughby, who's a trans woman, gave a personal account um, on how this issue has impacted on her. She also gave statistics about prejudice trans people and the Scottish Prison Service. Henderson states that there was a notable shift in body language from audience members, including smirks, sighs and laughing. And a panel member, Ella Whelan, who's the author of the online free speech defending magazine Spiked, then went on to the expected talking points such as biology is real, resulting in what Josh said was a poisonous atmosphere for the next 25 minutes. Deborah. Yeah, I wasn't intending to watch uh, BBC uh, that night <laughs> um, and I got a text from my girlfriend saying are you watching debate night and I was really confused because I was like what is she talking about and it was obviously question time so I put on the telly and all that I can say is when I went on India was given her a uh, speech which was I thought very clear and concise and total solidarity with her in that environment because it was just an onslaught of transphobic nonsense. I always hate when we have to talk about this subject because I don't understand why we're still at this point where we're like, if you're against the Gender Recognition Rights Act, fine and whatever. But if you're going to protest standing side by side with fascists and people quoting Mein Kampf as you know has happened recently I don't know what to tell you I, I think you need to reflect upon who's agreeing with you because I'd, what India said on that uh, on question time was I, you could feel her ex, her own exasperation from the experience I just 
being a trans woman and as the was it the audience member I forgot his name Josh was Josh. it mm-hmm. yeah who wrote into the national said it was poisonous and after my girlfriend had texted me then I had other friends saying, are you watching this what is going on and it was just and obviously we're all gay so we were like this is brutal like poisonous and toxic and I just I, I hate platforming anything a day with you know this campaign of hatred towards her trans siblings it's just solidarity solidarity them I just I can't I, somebody else please stop because I feel like greeting thinking about how awful the programme was honestly I mean I've I think the last time I watched Question Time, it has been literally years. It might be 10 years because it just seemed to be descending and degenerating into the right wing celebration every week. And just for my own good, you know, I thought I'm going to give myself a heart attack at some stage with the shouting. I kept being at the telly. I used to to watch Question Time pretty much every week. Um, And then obviously this week, it became obvious in social media that we probably discussing that because it became quite a big thing. Put it off until this morning. Oh my God. I was so angry. And I all the memories of the pre why I started watching questions came from flooding back. Um I switched it off about three times in the iPlayer and had and had to give myself a wee break and then uh, I wrote some notes and I come back to it. It was horrible. Oh, I mean, like that sneering journalist with spite. Was it Ella, Ella Whelan? Oh, I mean, why oh. spite? Like, we've, we've spoke about that publication before. You know, the, like this far right, you know, rag. That's, you call it a rag when it's digital. But anyway, you know, the fact that they still get invited on to these kind of shows and question time is so mainstream and she just comes on and just spouted or bigoted, rancid opinions. And there was a real contrast like when you were saying about India or Libby, you could really see how much it was weighing in her, you know, fighting this battle with this defensive action. And Ella Whelan is at the other end of the panel just throwing these vicious barbs, and you could tell she did not give a toss about any of it. It was just, she was just sitting back and enjoying, you know, reveling in the bigoted um, nature and uh, that bothered me more than like, as much as anything you know just the fact that she didn't really care she was just enjoying she was enjoying this toxic atmosphere um, at the same time you could see India Willoughby was in some of the other panels as well but was clearly uncomfortable being there and being you know subjected to it and uh, I it was it should have been stopped, you know. Somebody should have said that. Enough of this. This, you know, Fiona Bruce made a half-hearted attempt at one stage to say, you know, oh, let's keep this all nice where we debate whether trans people are allowed to be alive. You know, let's 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 be civil about our um, yep. bigotry. Um, and that was about as close as, as she came as a host to try to control the whole thing. That's what annoyed me as well. That the onus seemed to be on the only trans person in the panel to defend themselves and Jenny Gilruth I I think she was doing an alright job but I've just felt like 
sometimes allies have to be a bit more vociferous, especially when they've got a platform. And it should have been every time that a, a slur or a trope, it should have been totally shouted down. And that should have been by Fiona Bruce, the host. She should have been saying, we are not accepting any of this misgendering language. But they didn't, they didn't give a fuck. And as you said, it was just, it was as simple as that. It was a lack of care. It was for the the, the theatre, in my opinion, disgusting. Raging about it. Seriously raging. Yeah, I was um, actually forgot that uh, Question Time was on, uh, like that particular evening. And I woke up to see your message to say, are you watching this? You know, uh, and I actually watched it that morning. And I mean, I watch Question Time every week, right? Because I see it as a barometer, right? Of just how bad things actually are. Um. And this is the worst I've seen in a long, long time. The worst I've seen for, particularly for for LGBTQ, uh, LGBTQ plus A people. It's, it was extremely, extremely worrying. And what I, I, I mean, I see where Ginny Gilruth was was where our argument started. The defence of the section thirty five, and then we went into the details about the the, the rapist case who, who was held at a uh, court in Vale. And I wasn't, yeah, in solitary confinement, just to be clear. Um, I was not particularly impressed. I felt that all panel members had more of a responsibility to stand in solidarity with um with India, uh, particularly Fiona Bruce, who is obviously was, was chairing that discussion, Ian Murray, uh, Jenny Gilruth. I, I just don't feel that th- there should have been more solidarity there. To be honest, and I do feel that the most uncomfortable and, and distressing thing to watch in that was India having to defend herself in the context of this audience that was extremely hostile. I mean, that the particular uh, audience member who was was spouting clear transphobia, um, and and India was having to bat it away, and 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 India made a really really important point about how this conversation could have happened in the 1960s or 70s in the context um, of, of race, race equality, right? And then what was then done was Ella then took that and said that you're trying to call this audience member a racist. Well, no, that's not what India was doing. What India was doing was saying that this is the types of conversations that were happening uh, predominantly from, from white people, particularly those who are privileged, to say we, you know, as a feminist group, don't recognise or want to stand in solidarity with people of colour or women of colour or, or, or trans women or anything like that. And and she was, and, and, trying, and India was pointing that out. And then Ella willing to turn that around on India to say that she was she was somehow trying to say that this woman was racist, and we've we've seen similar comments, thankfully, from from the first minister and the the news agents podcast where she was actually saying, as you've pointed out, like with the the um, protests that just happened in Glasgow, that these people are aligning themselves with fascists. Okay, they themselves might not believe or think or or genuinely believe. Um, they are racist or they are homophobic or, or whatever it might be, but they are given wind and feeding into the power and platform and really, really dangerous ideas, um, which will, you know, people like the Tories will just run with, as we've seen, particularly with the Scottish Conservatives who are desperately trying to, you know, paint themselves as the defender of women when actually they themselves are responsible to one of the biggest damaging policies for women in the, in the last decade, which was austerity. Yeah, David. I mean, I've just got to say, for your own mental health, Brian, you wouldn't be fooled into think question time is a barometer. Oh, no, no, because no. Because we saw before 
how like there's been stories before about the way they rig their audience. They yeah. bring certain guests that always are in the extreme right, and then present them as, "Oh, this is you know Joe off the street," mm-hmm. when actually he's like, you know, he's like the president of the Scottish Donald Trump fan club, <laughs> which is not exactly the um, representative. And they done it again. Like they definitely rigged this audience. Like mm. it was packed with gammon. You could see the wee squash bulldog faces clapping like epileptic seals anytime somebody said something hateful. Um, and, and you saw it right right to the start. You saw it because uh, Jenny Girl Ruth like criticised the Tories, and there was this just that kind of wee smattering of applause through the crowd. And I'm thinking, this is Glasgow. There is no way somebody's just put the boot into the Tories and like 10% of the crowd have re- reacted positively. There's no way you'll ever convince me that that re- crowd representing Glasgow what did represent Glasgow was what you were saying on Sunday. The demonstration when you had these hate, hateful bigots for all our, not just, not just the UK, people, they flew in for it, uh, but were vastly outnumbered by our local Glaswegians that all came out to defend. Uh, trans people and you know dear god Brian don't <laughs> you've been putting a ticket a, a one way ticket out of here if, if you if you convince yourself that question time is the barometer of yeah. how everybody actually feels no I think I, I should have been a bit clearer what I say is the barometer of the reaction of the audience on question time versus actually what question time itself starts as a discourse because the question time being the mainstream flagship discussion point, it's the same when you look at like Sunday coverage as well, that the BBC sets the agenda and then we see the reaction. So it's more, I want to see what pe- what the talking points are. And, and then just to fully understand exactly where we come from, I certainly don't think that the, that, that audience reflects uh, the people of Glasgow and it certainly doesn't reflect Strathclyde University. I'll be very clear about that. Um, so no, I don't think that's the the. It's a nice little uh, jolly where everyone's been chosen to be equally representative, regardless to how many times Fiona feels she needs to say that throughout question time. Say honestly, it's, it's, it's representative. It's, it's this. It's that. I don't think anybody who lives in Glasgow would actually believe that that was representative. And you even need to look at the voting patterns just back in twenty twenty one for for the Glasgow region and, and for the constituencies that that is not representative of of Glasgow even in itself. It's absolutely not. And just a kind of a defence of Jenny Go Ruth, like uh, she could have maybe done a wee bit better, but at least she was on the right side and she mm-hmm. did was trying. Yeah. And you know it was. A very difficult atmosphere as well. Um, yeah, you know, India kind of didn't have a choice of being at the centre of it. That's where it went. Um, so I think it would be quite easy for somebody to support if they freeze up a certain extent in that um, environment. And India sort of loves this debate. Um, so you would expect it should be a lot more, you know, pulled up more the arguments and a way to the sort of. Um, the attack lines that would be coming. And, you know, and if you compare the other ones in the panel, you know, Ian Murray, I think, said he was supportive of trans people, but he just sort of tried to <laughs> both sides of the issue and was mm-hmm. pretty much a waste of a seat. He, he really didn't say much through the whole the whole segment. Um, he was, at one point, surprisingly, uh, the democratic voice of reason. Uh, <laughs> just a bit, you know... Uh, 
Scotland passing the GRR bill. Um, and I was taken a bit aback by that. But as you said, it was he's Ian Murray, isn't he? He just abstained, didn't he? And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, supporting that uh, same bill that he's just talked yeah. up on question time. Do you know what I mean? Um, it was, but, I, did, I did learn that he apparently was involved in a pizza making business. That's I right. Yeah. I, 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 you would know this with his, his <laughs> colleagues, his friends. His, um, he worked together in the past, is that what it was going? And the pizza, the pizza specialists of, of Scotland, yeah. And uh, John, no John Lamont, John Lamont as well was, um, you know, he was just lying through his teeth. He was just repeating every. I forgot he was there. Yeah, you know every lie about the GL uh, that that's been spouted and debunked like a hundred times. Yeah, he was just repeating again. Oh, what about single sex bases? What about the equality? Act? What about um, uh, you know this 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 bill was rushed over six years, and you're just like, <laughs> how many times do we need to listen to the same lies? How many times do we need to debunk them? And yet, somebody who's a government minister will just trot out and just lie. Just lie through his teeth because he must know that it wasn't rushed. There's no way he thinks that was rushed when his own party supported it like five five of the six years ago or something like that before deciding they could turn it into a a culture war and a wedge issue to try and uh, get votes for bigots. Yeah. because the Tories are desperate just now. Like they're absolutely desperate. Their polling's across the UK is terrible. The polling in Scotland's terrible. Um and we've seen these wedge issues um start to become their their only major talking point, whether it's small boats, whether it's trans people, whether it's, you know, anybody who wants to make their life better. You know, it just seems to be that they are the enemy and, and they're the defenders of, of British values, whatever British values are, you know, when it's at home. But um yeah, I genuinely forgot that John was on that panel. Um, he's a junior minister in the Scotland office, so he was technically involved in a lot of that, you know, Section 35 blocking of the GRR bill. So I feel that perhaps um, Fiona Bruce could have held him to account a little bit more um, because he is actually in that that office. Um, so the whole thing was just really, really terrible. And basically, I just felt really terrible um, for India. She'd put on Twitter before question time saying that she was so happy to be in Scotland because it's you know inclusive and all that kind of stuff and you know just for that to to happen to her is just really terrible but you know there is a positive end to this because after question time she she had stayed off Twitter because she was concerned about the the backlash and and whatever and then later on that day she had gone online and she had loads and loads of messages of support and love and solidarity so and she'd put a little video up to say thank you so you know it's um, there is a positive end to this but you know, we just need to to make sure that our solidarity is louder than bigotry. Here's a word from our sponsors. Our sponsor this week is Sense of Nature Pet Service, based in central Scotland. Sense of Nature gives you a hands-on, personalised experience with a variety of exciting creatures. From snakes and skunks to tarantulas and turtles, Sense of Nature has something for everyone. They offer sensory sessions, one-to-one in group sessions, educational encounters for children of all ages and they are available for private events upon inquiry. Animal welfare is at the forefront of everything they do and if appropriate a risk assessment can be carried out at no additional cost prior to your booking. To get 5% off your next booking with Sense of Nature, quote Holyrood Unguide 5 at time of booking. To contact Sense of Nature you can do so by email on sense 
www.of.natureinquiries at outlook.com. You can also find them on most social media platforms by searching for Sense of Nature. Next story. Uh, teachers want a 10% pay increase, but the Scottish government ministers say that's unaffordable. Education Secretary Shirley Ann Somerville has said that teachers should suspend their strike action uh, while pay talks continue and call for more compromise as the exam season looms. Uh, a national teacher strike is, is already scheduled to take place on the 20th of February and the 1st of March, and there's also a plan for 20 days rolling strike action right across local authority areas in Scotland from the 13th of March to the 21st of April. General Secretary of the uh, Teachers Union, EIS, um, has said that, the, um, that there was a pay offer submitted to them for 5%, which includes pay rises up to 6.85% for the lowest paid staff. Basically, um, there is the, this deal has been rejected uh, by the union and there has been no other um, pay offer put forward. Um, Andrea Bradley from the EIS said the response from the Scottish Government and COSLA has been essentially no, and this has now forced an escalation in our action. Um, but EIS is not the only union taking part in strikes. Last week saw the biggest day of industrial action in over a decade in the UK. There was walkouts in higher education, transport, civil service and others. England is facing industrial action by nurses and ambulance drivers this week, um, but these have been avoided in Scotland and Wales, where the governments have been actively negotiating with trade unions. David, what's your thoughts? I fully support the strike. Solidarity the strikers. Deborah? No, um, oh, no workers. I never know what to talk about like when we talk about strikes. They're important and I was like, you know, it's right that we cover it, but my, my stance doesn't change. I support mm -hmm. the people on strike. I don't even need to know the details because people don't strike in a whim, whim, a whim. You know, people don't decide to give up a day's wages for nothing or something trivial. You know, if they've got to that stage, it's because they've been pushed to it. And in the case of teachers and so many other public and private sector workers, you know, they've had wages have been suppressed in, in, uh, for, you know, a decade now. You know, so enough is enough. And combine that with um, inflation and the cost of living, you know, they're fully deserving of at least a 10% wage rise. Um, I don't like to sound as if I'm... An apologist for the Scottish government, but the devolution settlement does make it awkward. The fact that you know, you know, the UK government can can just agree to the strike and figure out how they want to pay for it, uh, whether through borrowing or um, a number of other things. Kind of, there's not as much wiggle room uh, for the Scottish government in terms of um, if they find that money, they need to find find it be somewhere else. Uh, so in that sense, I'm not going to just say this was the Scottish government just need to agree and pay it because it's not that simple. Um, I just hope they can come to an agreement. I hope they can come to an agreement that's acceptable to them. Um, I don't as, as a parent, I don't know if the kind of individual strike days really are having a huge effect. To me, it, mentally, when I when I hear the kids are off in the back of my mind. It, it, I, I just treat it as a, as a, a, a holiday I forgot about um, because you get these wee days uh, it pops up across the way 
they went in a kind of permanent strike action. I think it would really bring things to a head because all of a sudden every parent would be like pulling their hair out trying to figure out how they're going to get childcare for like the an open-ended period. Uh, taking the, when, it, when it is the individual days, and I understand why they do it because deciding you're going to forgo wages indefinitely uh, must be a really terrifying thing. But I think it also allows the disputes to just drag on and drag on and drag on. And some of these have been running for several years, like on and off. And I just uh, hope the workers get what they deserve. Deborah. Totally agree. Always support the workers. Uh, nobody knows their working conditions better than the people who are working in them. <laughs> so at, at the teachers, they've been, as you said, total stagnated pay. And it, they are basically caring for your child through the day and giving them education. And they're getting, in many instances, paid less than a premium dog walker, as I understand. Uh, so... Also, the, the posties, ambulance workers, uh, everybody, firefighters, civil servants, uh, communication workers, I believe, as well, are plenty of strike too. So, I just like I supported other rail staff, I'd, I, I can't emphasise enough how much that these people who are striking, they're not striking for millions of pounds. We're talking about a decent wage that they can live on in this current climate of increasing costs like we're just talking the energy costs going to go up another 20 percent so we we need to be more proactive and these people who are annoyed about the strikes how much wages have they got what, what rate of pay are they are they getting loads of money i just i wonder i wonder what their situation are because the strikers are also striking for you so that we set a standard right across space, excuse me, right across the board of a baseline living wage that is actually living in real time fucking currency. No, you know, an imagined amount of you can live in 36 pence fucking pasta. Let, let's, let's, I think everybody should strike. We should just have a big massive strike and just leave all those in power to uh, be the ones to figure it out. Let's see how they get on with it. Yeah, I'm all for a general strike. General strike. I just called it a big massive strike. I think that's what but it should I think that should be the, the hashtag. Big hashtag big strike. massive strike. Pure massive strike, man. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think I think that I'm really surprised that the TUC haven't kind of started to move towards a general strike. I know that what we're starting to see between different trade unions now is coordinated strikes. So, you know, where Aslef in, uh, in January, who, who represents train drivers, was right in the middle of the, the RMT, which is, which is the other support workers and the rail strikes. So basically bringing the rail service to a complete halt for five days, Monday to Friday at the start of January. So we're starting to see, see a shift towards that. Um, but I'm, I'm really surprised we're not at general strike stage now because of where inflation is, where, you know, how wages have stagnated for so long. And, you know, turning, like looking at teachers specifically, 
you know, since 2011, there was a couple of years where they accepted a 0% pay rise because of the financial crisis at the time and, and, and austerity and, and all these different things. And then they had like the odd 1% here and there. Yeah. So their their wages are massively down. There's loads of different figures, but it's between 13 and 23% that they're down on 2010 wages, right? So they're yeah. already massively down and on the back foot. And now we've had, you know, bumper inflation, um, which has which is basically just swallowed up you know the you know people's wages and like you said these are essential services and if teachers withdraw their labor it has a massive impact on every other sector because then parents can't go to work or you know you know you've got to to work out alternatives for childcare and things like that so i, I agree with you david i think it would be good to see the eas move more towards sort of more even if it's like a week-long strike five days whatever it might be that might have more of an impact i do have some sympathy with the devolution settlement and i know that they can't just pull money um you know out the bank like like the uk government can however we're at the budget and we could be talking about this a lot more and saying i know that there's sort of little kind of around the edges where this percentage of tax rates going up by this much and this is going to raise this much but you know ultimately this is the time where we should be having these conversations saying, well, actually, we're going to put this particular rate of tax up by 1% further, whether it be the top rate of tax to pay for uh, teachers so we can give them a, you know, seven and a half, eight, nine percent pay rise, whatever it is, and then watch people like the Tories who are saying, oh, the Scottish government needs to get this resolved, actually see if they'll then support it, because yeah. I guarantee you they will not. <laughs> so that will be quite interesting. And it would basically just smoke them out as well, because, you know, it would just take the, the power away from them to, to be vocal against the strikes. I think it's important to say as well, it's not just about money, these Absolutely. strikes. Mm-hmm. A lot of instances, it's just about the working conditions and mm-hmm. holidays and things that, you know, other folk might take for granted that, uh, for example, civil servants have, you know, maybe sacrificed to be able to uh, work days in lieu and, you know, it changes the rate of pay and like wee intricacies like that, that might seem insignificant. But if that's your working contract, you should, you know, have rights over those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, the teachers as well, the hours that they're actually mm-hmm. working, Unpaid like how much, hours, yeah. yes. And not just that, things that come out of their own pockets because they don't have the funds to cover you know basic essentials and there are so many things that you know need addressed in this country and I feel sort of sorry that it's it's come down to strikes again it's going to be you know the 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 workers that have to you know make this fight again I just, Mama keeps talking about the minor strikes and what that was like. And she's, you know, she's reminiscing about uh, the small victories. And I'm like, oh, isn't there that much of a victory? There's mass deindustrialization. It, mm-hmm. it, it worries me. So it's, just I solidarity with the workers and the strikers. Yeah, I mean, so, I, I don't think I realised how much extra stuff that um, teachers do, like these extra clubs and all that, that they don't get paid for. That's more of their time that they're handing over. I know I know quite a few teachers and loads of them have totally I've heard them say that they don't think there's much um homework is very productive and doesn't really help the kids. But um but basically it's for the parents. Because mm-hmm. the parents like to see the kids what work the kids are doing. And all right, you might think, oh it only takes five minutes to mark homework. But if there's twenty five kids in the class, that's two hours work every single day. Um, so that's my pitch to the education secretary: abolish homework. 
and absolutely and you know review the hours uh, that schools operate and, and and ultimately the types of models of education that, that we have in this country is that massively needs um, reviewed um I mean, I was uh, the UCU, which is the the, the the trade union which I'm a member of, uh, which represents university and college workers, um, was on strike uh, for the first time uh, this year so far, uh, on the the first of February. And you know, ours is very much about there's a pension issue, so pensions is, is one of the sort of foundations uh, problems to do with that. But there's a, there is four fights, and ultimately it's looking at casualisation of workers. Uh, as a, as a as a doctoral researcher, I'm on a zero hour contract if I teach. So, you know, it's very much an on-demand service that, that the universities expect from us when, you know, that's not very reliable for people like us. There's massive, um, you know, uh, differences between the gender pay gap in universities is massive. Uh, and also looking at the, the intensification of work as well, that where the minute marking and, and teaching time and preparation time that's kind of crammed in with that, as well as having to do your own research, as well as having to, pub uh, to, to publish to keep your job. So it's, you know, there is some some similarities um, with, with higher education, further education and in uh, schools, state schools, and also in our health service in, in Scotland as well. We're not entirely out of the woods. Um, the pay deal was accepted by two unions, a 7.5% pay offer on average, um, and Unite and RCN have rejected that. Uh, so they're still negotiating with the, the Scottish government as well. So even though we're not seeing strike action at the moment, it's something that we might see um, uh, in the next few months, which is, which is really concerning. Next topic. This is a fun one. So... Liz Truss has said uh, she, will, uh, she was never given a realistic chance to implement her radical tax cutting agenda by the Conservative Party while she was in number 10. In a 4,000 word essay in the Sunday Telegraph, trusted by her plans to boost economic growth, stating that they were brought down by the left wing economic establishment. I don't know if that's the same as the anti-growth establishment or not, but it's a left wing one anyway. Um, they are the first uh, public comments the XPM has made since her resignation, um, but she said she was not blameless for the unravelling of the mini-budget. The current business secretary, Grant Shapps, who was appointed by Truss uh, as her home secretary for a couple of days before she was kicked out of office, has said that she clearly had not had the right approach. And um, whilst he was on uh, Laura Kunzberg's show on Sunday, he said that he wanted to see lower taxes in the long term, um, but we need to get inflation under control first. Truss was forced to quit after she and her uh, Chancellor uh, of the Exchequer, Quasi Quarting's forty-five billion package of tax cuts spooked the markets and tanked the pound to a record low. Deborah. So I don't know if it was uh, the world's longest, sorry, I'm not sorry, <laughs> excuse, or the world's longest uh, covering letter for a new job application. I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't tell. <laughs> um, I was, she blamed Everybody, she even at one point she said, and then the Queen died. So <laughs> I'd like to point out, it might not be any surprise that I don't have a subscription to the Times, but if you're one to read the article, the trick is to Telegraph. load it. Uh, is it the Telegraph? <laughs> yes. Yeah, sorry. Aye, well, I've not got one of them either. Um, it, it was a different article, sorry, I was reading on the Times, but the, the, a, a good accessible hack is if you load the story in a browser and then before it finishes loading switch to reader view you'll bypass any paywall so you don't have to pay to read 
this excruciatingly long. <laughs> it's, it's honestly, it, everybody, she took, she did actually fully admit to something. Did you notice that? She mm. said, I, I fully admit that I was not the best communicator. <laughs> really? Is this, you know, the thing that you're most known for being your worst attribute, that's what you're admitting to. Well done, Liz. That's really proud and brave. It was just rubbish, wasn't it? I think she's setting herself up to get back in government and some sort of... I don't I don't know what... I, it's rubbish. Did, did any of you enjoy reading it? Because I had... It was really excruciating. David? The Queen Slayer is back. <laughs> they can't keep her down. That left-wing... <laughs> Famously left-wing establishment of bankers and international financiers. She can, she's, she will not be defeated. No, I mean, how deluded is she? You know, like, does she genuinely think she's got a comeback on here? Uh, you know, she will go down as a footnote in history, as like a joke answer when it comes to like, you know, you know, in ten years' time in a quiz show, somebody will say who was prime minister for. 40 days in 2022 and had to resign and and if the people are like under 30 they'll be like well, did it say it was a she? Oh, um, um, oh Theresa May. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that must be difficult for anybody. Imagine climbing to the very peak of your industry and politics to lead the nation and just be completely found out about how ill-suited and competent here. Um, so maybe this is just a, for her own mental health, she has to kind of just try like and create a this wee... Cathartic exercise? Yeah, just dangling the, the hope that maybe she's got something ahead of her and that this isn't, you know, her legacy is not already written. And it absolutely is. Um, I, I don't like think when she's she... quite, I don't think she's trying to get, get into book back into government a bit like Boris Johnson I think their plan is to be the next leader of the opposition oh. I think they're, I think the Tories are already you know um, I've already made up their mind they realise they're going to lose the next election and they're already jockeying they'll be sort of in pole position to step in when presumably Sunak will have to step down as leader because I think the days of somebody being Prime Minister and then going to be leader in opposition are gone. Um, and it doesn't say a lot about Sunak that his two predecessors are kind of hovering like vultures here. They yeah. obviously see, smell blood and um, sense weakness. Um, my favourite bit of the whole thing is I saw her getting interviewed um, and she was asked <laughs> about quasi things, a performance as Chancellor. And they said, so you saying he did nothing wrong? They said, absolutely, he only did what I asked him. And they said, so why did you sack him? <laughs> she, it was well, like the best answer ever. She just kind of went, made a face and kind of shrugged as if, what am I like? What am I like? <laughs> well, she answered that in her 4,000 word essay. Uh, she said that uh, senior officials had warned her that if something wasn't done, uh, you know, it would be her downfall. And then she said, so I had to remove the Chancellor. And it was like, it was such a shame. Poor, poor quasi. Like she... So, uh, quasi, <laughs> crushed with the bus, I threw him under. I know. 
I never thought coming. It was like that meme with the bike, you know, and this the the cyclist going along and they stick the stick in. It was her saying, "Poor quasi." Oh fuck, <laughs> her doing it. It was. I also liked when she blamed Joe Biden. So she blamed the Queen. She blamed Joe Biden. She blamed the men in grey suits. She blamed the the International Monetary uh, was it Forum. But fund, fund. fund, yeah, blame famous, them and the famous lefties at IMF. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the famous lefties, the OBR. Yeah, and she also blamed Brexit, but then ended <laughs> in that how wonderful Brexit is, and that you know there's hope for the future. Like it was just, it was deranged. It was deluded, deranged, and just as you said, she's going to be a pointless answer in one of the you know quiz programs. See, all you lefties are always demanding to know the Brexit benefits <laughs> and we finally found one. Liz Trust is gone. Liz Trust. They <laughs> removed Liz Trust. I don't even know how the left is getting blamed. Like, it's just, it's like, oh, it's damn, damn is socialists. Like, it's this sort of, like, um, phantom left that just doesn't really exist. It's like, whoa, the left done that. Whoa, look at the left. Oh, the socialists want to do this. But I think with, with this Liz Trust story, I think one of the biggest things that really got on my goat about this was, you know, at some point she was going to try and make some kind of comeback, you know, to try and, because she left in complete, like, she must have been mortified, you know, like when when she had to, to leave after, you know, 45 days or whatever it was. And then was sort of laughed off. Everybody's like, you know, the Conservatives were polling like the worst that they'd ever had. I think the, the, one of the polls that was done at the end of uh, Liz Truss's premiership that the Tories would have one seat. <laughs> Like, that's how bad it was. Um, so, you know, she was always going to come back at some point. But what really, really got to me was the establishment journalists kind of going, oh, it's rumoured Liz Truss is going to make a comeback. Oh, she's going to be, you know, saying something soon or she's making a comeback. And it was almost like, like sort of, you know, Gina up, like, ooh, this is so exciting. This is so exciting. And then, of course, it would, of course, be on a Sunday. So, you know, it was the the, the main topical point for over 25% of the BBC One's flagship programme on Sunday morning when there's so much else going on in the world, right? And then you've got, you know, I don't know, it's like, it just seems to be discussed everywhere. And I know we're doing it as a light-hearted sort of jokey way, but it's it's been talking points and all these problems. And this is also another reason why I watch the BBC coverage to see what on earth are they actually talking about when they should actually be talking about these things. Um, and, you know, like Politics Live and all this kind of thing is like, oh, Liz Trust, is this going to be problematic for Rishi Sunak? I don't think that Liz Trust is particularly problematic for Rishi Sunak. I think everything else that's going on right now is problematic for, for the Tories and, and Rishi, Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak government. is problematic <laughs> yes. for Rishi Sunak. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, but for, for Rishi Sunak as well, like to be in Parliament, um, I think it's quite a unique situation as Prime Minister because you've got three predecessors like sitting in the back benches, you know, um, where I don't think that's quite normal because normally it seems to be like the predecessor would sit there to like the next general election and probably just disappear. But you've still got Theresa May, you've still got Boris Johnson, you've got Liz Truss and, and obviously Rishi Sunak's currently Prime Minister. And then also... It's so difficult when people are talking about these things when you're trying to remember who was in which post at what time. Yeah. it's uh, Because before you could always be like, oh, that's the such and such, or that's the health secretary, or, or that's that. It's genuinely difficult because you're like, what was that person's position at that particular time? Or <laughs> who knows what am I like? You know, and that's just how bad this whole situation's got. 
there was a, an interesting piece written by ex-Tory David Gawk in The New Statesman, where he went into a lot of detail about using his market knowledge about how, you know, basically Liz, Liz Truss was saying that she didn't know how these sort of um, pension bonds worked and whatever, and she didn't realise that it would cause all the, the uncertainty and the panic that it did. But that's not true because the um, everybody, all, all the financial institutions were saying you can't do this because, you you know, basically you're, you, we're saying you can't do this. We'll let you borrow the money at a higher rate, but we don't trust it's, it's the best thing to do. And then, of course, if you do something that the financial institutions don't like, then it's going to cause complete and utter yeah. chaos. The, the Bank of England had to step in because nearly pensions completely collapsed. You know, so if we... You know, if you, you hark back to the debates around the independence referendum, these were the scare stories. It was like, oh, the pension pot is going to collapse and blah, blah, blah. And nearly happened. Yeah. And it nearly actually happened under the UK, under a fiscally responsible Tory government. So it's just the whole thing is, and to do it with such brass is just... Yeah. It was unfair. like, I'm so privileged in my situation, no poor me with all these choices, how you know, it, like mm-hmm. that's how she wrote the the article, and it, it was just yeah, it was really an entitled drivel. <laughs> to be honest, it was off. Like whose fault was it that uh, the economy crashed? Was Liz Truss usurped by left wing radicals? No, she wasn't. <laughs> was Liz Truss was Liz Truss's problem? I think I think it's you know a reflection of who radicalised the Tory, mm-hmm. both the parliamentary party and the membership is getting that, you know, like, that she can seriously turn around and refer to, like, bankers and international financiers as, as like, some kind of left-wing establishment. <laughs> you know, like, they've, they've, they've spiralled so far and so extreme to the right. You know, like, they look at somebody like Kenneth Clark and they can't tell with a German mouth. Um... <laughs> But I mean, politics is getting so ridiculous. You know, she she won the membership, uh, the Tory party, quite convincingly, and we've seen like you know a lot of right wing people are stupid. They're very susceptible to very simple phrases repeated over and over. Get get Brexit done, things like that. Just keep saying it, and they'll just start repeating it, and and. And they'll think it was their idea. I could see suddenly they they never gave her a chance. They never gave her a chance, and Tory members would just start repeating that. They never even gave her a chance, or left wing economic establishment would start repeating that as well. <laughs> and I would not rule her out becoming Tory leader if she stood in the aftermath of an election defeat. Um, it's interesting to see if her and Boris stood. Uh, what would happen? I think potentially you could see the Tories uh, a bit like after the '97 election, you could see them in the wilderness for a while because mm-hmm. that's what happened then. They, they sort of started talking to each other and started trying to outdo each other and who could be more right wing and stop really speaking to the more mainstream stream electorate. That'd be nice. It would be just to get some respite would be nice, but then. What's the alternative? Well, I mean, it's hard to see a, a David Cameron coming along and sort of turning it around for them, which is what he did. Mm-hmm. And it, and everybody forgets because they just think of David Cameron as the, the, the posh Tory that shagged a dead pig. 
you know, before that, he was the leader of the opposition that um, that was like saying hug a hoodie and going to the North Pole and talking about um, climate change and changing their badge to a nice, lovely, you know, friendly tree. You know, I, I could not see that flying now in the Tory party, even if they didn't believe it, which I suspect most of them, even when they spotted Cameron, could see that they were just doing this for effect. It was, it was a marketing strategy rather than any principles. I'm not even sure you'd get away with running that kind of marketing strategy in a Tory leadership. I think you'd be ripped apart. Mm. Um, and and David Cameron, before he became a politician, was actually in public relations and marketing. So that's just something to be mindful of, that, that he himself managed to, you know, paint a veneer over the Conservative Party, certainly, um, to, to make it more acceptable to the electorate. And then, of course, was actually responsible for for the start of one of the the most problematic contemporary problems that we've got in society, which was hysteria. So, let's trust she kills the queen, and now she's got to kill the Tory party. What an absolute legend! <laughs> Not this. <laughs> maybe well, on that note, sort out the Labour Party, and then maybe the UK might get a decent place to live. <laughs> Nobody's dying. Right. On that note, we'll come to a nice conclusion and an end. Thank you so much for having me as your host today. It's been quite weird, actually. The whole dynamics has been really odd. And I've discovered that I am terrible at reading things aloud, which I've never had to do since school. So we've all learned that. As uh, Brian's not very good at that. But anyway, thanks very much, Deborah. Thanks very much, David. Thanks for having me in your show, Brian. You're very thanks, welcome. Brian. You were you a wonderful have- Post. Stop lying, Deborah. And uh, you can have this job back next week, David. Well, so I'm just going to read out this next part. Be next week because we're actually finished the season. Um, oh, so I finished the season off. Look at that. Yeah. So, so you've got the season finale, Brian. You were well, the big well. ender. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> so we'll, be back, we'll be back around about March time and we'll keep us informed. We're off here. for a holiday. We're off to relax. We're off to be politically active and then we'll come back and we can chat all about it. And who knows, we might have a new Prime Minister by then. Who knows? Anyway, I'm just going to attempt to read out this next segment and then we're going to conclude. You can find all the podcasts at leftungag.org as well as written articles and you can sign up uh, for a free newsletter at ungagged.substack.com. North American-based podcast, World Beat with George Collins, Talking Sense podcast with Kat and Erin. If you have anything you want to talk, uh, want us to talk about, Tweet us at, un- at underscore ungagged, hashtag Hollywood ungagged, or email us at ungaggedleft at gmail.com, putting Hollywood ungagged in the subject line. If you enjoyed this, please give us five stars, whatever, whatever podcast platform you use. Join our Discord community. Have fun. Be good. Be lucky. Send solidarity. Be sexy. Have a fabulous time. See you later. See you <laughs> Bye-bye. later. Bye. Something was wrong Between her was pretty cool Might knew something didn't belong Tina never went to school Might got pushed around Tina got left at home Tina got pushed down 
Martin wished that he was gone Cause he just wants to go where Tina goes The way she wears her hair, the way she wears her clothes He just wants to know what Tina knows He just wants to go where Tina goes